Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. So, Harayim Tovim, uh, good afternoon, and... Welcome to, I know I heard from at least <laughs> over a dozen online who wrote me about this, and I'm sure several more are watching. And uh, to those of you in person joining um, the youngest adult education class we have here at Temple on Sundays at 4.30. Let me explain. Um, the youngest adult education class are the juniors and seniors in our Temple Sunday High School program. Rabbi Wolner's confirmation class, Rabbi Dreyfus and Rabbi Simon's classes are also here. I just wanted to explain for all of us that when Jewish youth are confirmed at the end of their 10th grade year, in a ceremony introduced by the Reform Movement in Germany over 200 years ago, that ceremony, which we hold on the first Friday in May, it's May 6th this year, confirms the entry of every Jewish person into young adulthood. So I teach post-confirmation, grades 11 and 12, where we explore God, Torah, and Israel on multiple levels, including last week's session on how Judaism relates to the slaughter in Ukraine. I talked about how the call to compassion and moral courage of President Zelensky is what Judaism would call the authentic voice of God, while the call to tyrannize, terrorize, or murder is a betrayal of everything the God idea stands for in Judaism. We talked about how being religious is to heed the call of moral conscience and to promote life, not death, as two of my juniors and seniors arrive into the Danziger Chapel. And that's why we talked about the mitzvah, lo ta'amod al-dam re'echa. You all know what that means. Do not stand idle while people you know about are bleeding. And if you want to correct me and say, but I thought it says, do not stand idle while your neighbor bleeds. As Rabbi Joachim Prinz, Joachim Prinz uh, noted, neighbor in the Torah is not a geographic term. It's a moral concept. Do not stand idle while people you know are bleeding. But I admit that I dodge questions that inform where we are in this moment in time. As Putin orders atrocities, creates orphans, 
and commits crimes against humanity and crimes against God by any faith definition. So we're not only horrified and saddened and enraged, we're also confused. So much has been made about the courage, resolve, bravery, and sacrificial spirit of President Zelensky and Ukrainian people, all true. But is it true that 20% of the residents of Kyiv are really Russian? And if so, how can Putin sell the narrative of slaughtering your own relatives in Ukraine? How did this all come to be historically? Now, while a few members of my Temple 11th, 12th grade class since 2000 have attended college at the University of Mississippi, even more attended the University of Michigan, where this afternoon's teacher became a doctor. Not a medical doctor, <laughs> as his child can attest. If we get sick in the first home, don't ask that doctor first. But he did become a professor whose PhD and research is all about Ukraine and Russia in the 19th and 20th centuries. 44 million people live in Ukraine in 2022. But how did we get here? And just where are we? The best person I know anywhere, and I mean that, not just at Temple Israel, but anywhere to teach us, happens to be this professor in our midst, a cherished temple member from a cherished Temple Israel family. Before I call forward the Croft Professor of History at the University of Mississippi, I must mention first his greatest achievements. The first was marrying another active member of our synagogue and a stellar educator in her own right, Sarah First, and their greatest achievements are their two sons, Samuel and Jonah. Please join me in thanking our devoted Temple Israel member and distinguished professor of history, Joshua First, for giving us a brief history of Ukraine and Russia. Professor Josh First. Thank you very much. Thank you. Rabbi Micah, this is this is an honor, and um, I'm a little embarrassed by uh, by uh, the the heroism of, of 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 that introduction. I I don't know if I can take credit for <laughs> for so much uh, praise here, um, you know. And I, I think that you know when I came here today, I I, I just got off of this Zoom call that uh, Rabbi Bess had had uh, notified us on the uh, Temple Facebook page where. Uh, uh, Rabbi Greece from uh, from Odessa spoke about her very harrowing experience um, of escaping escaping Odessa, walking uh, 36 kilometers, and, and eventually ending up on the other side of the Polish border to safety, while the uh, president of the congregation remained behind to protect the Torah scrolls in Odessa. And, and this is just an amazing, inspiring tale. Um, and I hope some of you got to listen to it earlier today. If not, it's uh, available. It was recorded in the it's available on uh, the synagogue's uh, Facebook page. Um, Rabbi Best, you, do you have the name of the synagogue? Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think it's really worth a, a watch. It's about an hour of your time, but I, I really want to build on some of the themes that uh, Rabbi Gris uh, talked about earlier today. Um, you know, I, and I have to confess that, um, you know, I, you know the, the reason why I wanted to come here today is because I had read uh, Rabbi Micah's statement about Ukraine last Sunday, um, and I thought it was really on point and, as usual, incredibly poignant. He said, quote, as the effects of Putin's war on Ukraine begin to hit our pocketbooks and gas bills, which it has. Um, yesterday, I, I went and got gas, and it was over $4 a gallon. Um, I, I ask myself what we Americans are truly sacrificing that ultimately matters relative to President Zelensky and random Ukrainian grandfathers throwing themselves in front of invading Russian tanks. Who is the greater witness to the image of God, people who lack moral clarity or truly sacrificial souls who refuse to give in to one authoritarian man? Really good questions. Um, he, he wrote about how we can never rationalize or condone, and I, and I might add trivialize, um, aggressive actions like this, which seems like an easy bar to hit, but we, I think we do this uh, in so many ways. It, it's true that there are some folks, generally extremists and others on the political margins, who take Putin's side in this conflict. Um, I was listening on NPR today about how white supremacist organizations are, are one of those groups who do take Putin's side. No surprises there. But more often, I think we excuse atrocity by saying that bad things happen all the time. Putin, of course, wants us to believe this. And the Russian ambassador at the UN General Assembly uh, condemned the West for its concern about Ukraine while it bombed Iraq and Afghanistan over the past 15 to 20 years. That, that's what the UN ambassador said uh, from Russia. And we may ask ourselves, you know, why is Poland opening up its borders to Ukrainian refugees when it so recently closed its borders to Syrians? What about the racism at the border that seemed to treat African students stuck in Ukraine differently than Ukrainians and other people with white skin? What about NATO expansion? What is the role of NATO expansion in, in the current conflict? So all of these questions sort of come up. They sort of divert our attention, um, you know, sometimes justifiably, other, other times unjustifiably, uh, uh, you know, away from, away from uh, the primary atrocities that are happening right now in, in this particular place. And there's this, I think, cynical logic of our age where we laugh at the coming, uh, the coming apocalypse. Uh, my son, who is forced to once again listen to me talk about this, um, tells me that uh, you know, all the discussion in his middle school nowadays is about when the nukes are going to start hitting the United States, which is not so much schadenfreude, so much as a celebration of meaninglessness on, uh, on some level. Others get bogged down by complexity and shrug our shoulders and say, you know, I just don't know what's going on, and they move on with their days. And then finally, I think we lose interest, right? Um, we, um, you know, uh, uh, and the news cycle moves on. Um, I, I was listening to a webinar the other day. One of the participants was the former economics advisor, the Minister of Trade and uh, Minister of Economics and Trade uh, to President Zelensky. He was speaking from his basement, the basement of his apartment in Kiev, um, and, and he said he knows the West is going to lose interest quickly. 
which is why Western governments need to contribute as much as they can right now, and why so much pressure needs to be put on Russia now. This is the window of opportunity because we're most likely to care at this particular moment. So in short, I think that war um, for uh, Americans in particular can quickly become normalized. And this is part of the process of, of I think, rationalization that Rabbi Micah was talking about in that, in that great statement about, about um, what's going on. Um, I have to confess that I never believed that this war was going to happen was going to happen um, I posted on on Facebook right after the invasion started that I'm guilty of thinking that it was impossible um, and what was interesting to me is that so many experts on the region so many experts uh, on Ukraine also chimed in and responded I'm guilty of this too um, I did have the wherewithal to contact colleagues that I knew um, in Ukraine while the military buildup was kind of developing. Um, and I said, are you guys doing okay? And, and they said, yeah, yeah, you Americans seem so much more concerned about what Russia is doing than we are here. And interestingly enough, that was one of the comments that Rabbi Gris made uh, in her talk earlier today, that all of her friends and, and colleagues uh, from the United States, from Western Europe, we're, we're constantly emailing her. It's like, oh, hey, what's going on? They're like, we're, we're doing fine, we're doing fine, until the very moment in which things weren't fine. Um, so, so the true buildup, in retrospect, uh, follows patterns of Russian uh, scare tactics from previous years. During the past eight years, there were so many times when I read articles and social media posts warning that a Russian invasion was imminent. I got, the, I got to the point where every time I heard this, I'd roll my eyes when someone would mention something like that. Um, and we can now look back and see a context and a history of increasing Russian aggression against Ukraine, which goes back not only to 2014, but at least in, uh, back to 2004. Um, we, we experts probably thought that Russia would eventually settle into a new relationship that wasn't necessarily friendly. Uh, but which would also not descend into outright antagonism. We were wrong. Um, but being wrong and then trying to figure out what we could have done better is still a question that I have and I don't really have good answers for. Um, and so I want to ask other questions and also give very unsatisfactory answers to those questions. So the first question is, what are Russia's objectives? What are Russia's objectives? I mean, I... I you know, I've, I've struggled try to figure, trying to figure this out. Um, I've, you know, even um, done the, the very, um, you know, simple thing of Googling what are Russia's objectives in the present conflict, right? Just to get some ideas of what other people are writing about this. I looked on foreign affairs to see, you know, what, what, what um, sort of foreign policy experts are saying about what Russia's objectives are, and I still don't quite accept any one particular answer. Now, Russia says that it wants official recognition that Crimea is part of Russia. Why would Russia risk everything for that? Ukraine has long given up on Crimea, and the world understands that Crimea is Russian. What does it matter that they get official recognition? Russia says that it, that it wants an end to NATO expansion 
or even the abolition of NATO. Why would a military alliance built for the purpose of European security disappear after the largest threat to European security since its creation? If we take Russia at its word, then the government, the people in government, must be insane. I don't believe that. I think many of the people in the Russian government are actually quite intelligent. Or intelligent, sorry. <laughs> there is intelligence, too. Um, and, and so that, that kind of leaves us with that explanation also being quite unsatisfactory. Putin says that he aims for the, quote, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. And, and this phrase, as irksome as it is to, to us Jews in particular, weds the vague with the absurd. Equally absurd is the Russian government's claim that this invasion is to protect are to prevent genocide against Russians in the Donbass. And I should say, you know, in answer to what Rabbi Micah was, was asking about the 20% of, of Kiev's residents being, being Russian, um, this is a very difficult question. Who is Russian? Um, who, is, who is Ukrainian, right? Well, every, uh, you know, the vast majority of Kiev citizens are Ukrainian citizens. At the same time, most people that you run into on the street in Kyiv are Russia speakers. Now that's changing, that's getting smaller. When I was in Ukraine uh, during um, the Orange Revolution in 2003, 2004, um, almost everybody spoke Russian in, um, in Kyiv. Um, the only people I ever heard who spoke Ukrainian were those people who were part of, I, I would say, the intelligentsia, sort of the intellectual, the political elite, along with watching TV and listening to the radio. That's where I heard Ukrainian most, most of the time. Uh, but Russian was the language of the street. Russian was the language of interpersonal interaction for the most part. Um, and so does that make those people Russian? No, it does not make those people Russian. It makes them Ukrainian patriots for the most part. Um, and again, that's, that's becoming even more so uh, the case. Um, so so this, this question of this, this idea of like we're trying to prevent genocide against the Russians in, in the Donbass, um, uh, you know, is, is of course absurd. And um, I'm often, I often, when I hear people make these claims about genocide, which I hear as a verb now, um, which by the way, never use genocide as a verb. Don't, just don't do it. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not a verb. Okay, anyway. Um, I'm, I'm often brought back to uh, the comparative genocide sc scholar Israel Charney, and he said um, that any claim of genocide had to come from concern for the victims rather than promoting an ideological or political position. Clear Putin clearly falls into that precondition if he's using that as a justification for this war. And in fact, um, casualty rates have been fairly equal on each side of the Dumbass conflict since it began in 2014. Um, and during the, uh, the past eight years, uh, casualty rates have actually gone way down, especially during the presidency of, of uh, Zelensky. Moreover, it's clear that Russian speakers have had more freedom of expression and civil rights in Ukraine than they have had in Russia during the, pa during the past decade at least, probably for the past 15 years or more, uh, as Russia has become ever more authoritarian and Ukraine has become more and more democratic for the most part. So the scary part of this war is we don't know what Russia's true object objectives are. 
Um, the second question that is so unsatisfying in its answers is what are the possible outcomes? And I think the possible outcomes are equally nebulous for a couple of reasons. Um, our own military actions are, of course, limited by the danger of nuclear engagement with Russia, which means that Ukraine is alone in, in this conflict. It's alone, um, and we can't foresee other countries getting militarily involved on their behalf. That said, um, citizens of other countries have gotten involved. I got an email from uh, you know, a colleague of mine who lives in Lviv, and he, and he told me about how a bunch of Australians showed up at his office wondering where uh, to get guns so they, they could go to the, the front and fight for Ukraine. And he was just, he was partly disturbed, but partly inspired by this group of, of, of young people who traveled all the way from Australia to Poland and then crossed the border into Ukraine. Um, but I don't think that's going to turn the tide of the battle. Um, second, though this is neither a symmetrical conflict, nor is it a starkly asymmetrical conflict. Russia is strongly favored to win if it can successfully mo mobilize its superior uh, armed forces and its much larger population. Rabbi Micah mentioned that Ukraine is about 44 million people, 44, 45 million people. It's losing population every year, even without this, this conflict. Um, Russia, also losing population every year, um, is nonetheless about 140 to 150 million people. So that's that's the size difference in this country. We could also talk about the, the, the different economy, the different economic uh, possibilities for these two countries. Ukraine is a poor country. Its GDP per capita, which I know it doesn't tell us everything about how rich people are in a country, its GDP per capita is around the same as India or Nigeria. Um, by contrast, Russia's economy is closer to Brazil, Argentina, and um, uh, South Africa. So, um, so these are these are these are countries with starkly different um, wealth levels of wealth, and uh, but at the same time, um, the the uh, you know um, even though they they can mobilize a much superior armed force and and have a much larger population, they do so only at the expense of very high casualties due to the conditions of total war in Ukraine. So Ukraine is facing a condition of total war, whereas. Russia is facing a condition of limited mobilization. And, and so that tends to favor Ukraine's side because everything has been, everything, their entire economic resources have been mobilized for this one purpose. Well, Russia obviously cannot do that, at least not at this stage, especially when lots of people seem to be um, uh, not supportive of the conflict in Russia. Although the, the degree to which Russians support or do not support the conflict remains to be seen. Um, I, uh, even though academics that I know that I communicate with on social media and over email tend to be against the conflict, um, but these, these people are in a, within a kind of small intellectual bu bubble. And what these people are saying, however, is that you know, they decry the fact that their, their own parents, their own relatives and friends are nonetheless um, uh, supportive of Vladimir Putin's agenda. And so that's, that's, that's disheartening, despite these, these images that we see on television with um, 
you know, thousands and thousands of people mobilizing against the war. Um, and these isolated capels, uh, cases where people are ho holding signs that said, Niet Vanyam, no war. Um, I, I saw an image of, um, there's, still, there's still ice on the rivers, on the River Moika, or it's actually a canal, in the center of St. Petersburg. And on the, on the ice, of the river, someone wrote Niet Vanya. And um, a little bit later, someone threw a bunch of paint on top of the Niet Vanya uh, to cover it up. And whether that was, you know, also just an individual person or whether it was a city government, um, we don't know. But so it, this, there is something going on in Russia, but we don't know the extent to which it's actually going to do anything. And then uh, that leads me to another point here, and that is sanctions can only work if the Russian elite turns against Putin. This could happen, but why not yet? What is holding the Russian elite back? Um, well, obviously personal interests, of course. Wealth is, a key, is key to the maintenance of the Russian elite. Um, and toppling Putin will destabilize the system as a whole, perhaps much more so than sanctions. Second, though, no one is really being trained for succession. You know, and Putin exacerbates the problem of succession by continually shaking up the elite. Um, as soon as someone is identified, oh, here's a possible successor of Putin, that person is demoted or taken out of the elite entirely. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as the news is constantly emphasized, he's, Putin's been isolating himself uh, further and further during the pandemic uh, because of his own par paranoia about getting sick, um, making the issue of succession uh, another crisis, right? Whenever Putin uh, either is too sick to, to carry on or he dies, there will be a succession crisis. And so the elite knows that there's going to be a succession crisis and they want to prevent that from happening as long as possible. Um, and, and furthermore, you know, during a war, it's, it's probably not a good time to trigger a succession crisis, right? But if the elite does turn against Putin, it will probably come from within the military. Uh, but they'll have, the military, if they want to initiate a coup against him, they'll have to confront the security establishment, which is staunchly loyal to Putin. And by security establishment, I also mean this new institution called the National Guard, uh, which is led by Putin's own bodyguard, <laughs> this guy Zolotov, who uh, was given the commission of the National Guard. And part of the, I guess, the charge of the National Guard is to protect Putin from the elite. Um, and so this is the kind of political situation that's been developing in Russia over the past decade, decade and a half. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite scary. And, and um, I think that, you know, um, my conclusions here are, are pretty grim about the possibilities for this turning out well. Um, but I want to, I, I don't think it's hopeless. I, I don't want to instill anybody with hopelessness. Um, but I want to come back up here a bit and talk about the pretext for the invasion a little bit. After all, this was build, about, build a brief history, so I should talk a little bit about history. Um, so, um, Putin has always been a, a, a strident student of history, um, and he never fails to bring up Russian history by when, when he's challenged by other world leaders. There's this story where 
Uh, for the most part, Barack Obama uh, was dealing with um, President Medvedev during his time in office. And then Putin came back. Um, and when Putin came back, Barack Obama suddenly had to deal with Putin rather than Medvedev, who descended into the background. And the first thing that Putin did was offer him an hour-long lec lecture about Russian history. And, and, and Barack Obama had to smile and nod for an hour. Um, that's what Putin does a lot. Um, he likes to tell people the history of Russia. His history of Russia is, of course, very, very tainted by, um, by the uh, few Russian historians that he reads and nobody else takes very seriously. Anyway, last summer, um, Putin began to write a series of articles outlining his views of Ukrainian history. And then he reiterated many of these views in a speech he gave right before the invasion. In other words, history has determined and history has, has forced his hand to act. He, as someone who wants to um, be viewed well by historians, uh, realized that he had to change history. Um, core to Putin's ideas about Ukrainian history are a few things that have just enough accuracy and truth in them to be dangerous. First is his perspective that Ukraine's borders were constructed by forces that did so at the expense of Russian interests. So the Poles, the Austrians, the Germans, the communists, and finally the Americans invented Ukraine as a counterpoint to Russia. The people of Ukraine, or the people in Ukraine, uh, insofar, insofar as they had a voice, always expressed their unity with Russian and Russian civilization. So that's point one. Second is the idea that the Ukrainian government is fascist or even Nazi. So during each of the periods in which Ukraine has sought its independence from Russia or its independent will, um, what came out of it was xenophobia, far-right nationalism, and anti-Semitism. According to Putin, the victims have not only been Russian speakers, but also other groups excluded from the Ukrainian nation-building project, Jews in particular. In essence, Ukraine doesn't exist in history, but when Ukrainian and Western elites will it into existence, bad things happen. So what, what do we think about as Jews when we think about Ukraine? And I don't, I don't want to discount these ideas without further investigation, even if we can agree that their weaponization is categorically wrong. After all, what is Ukraine in our collective consciousness as Jews? Um, in high school, uh, I remember reading Chaim Potok's History of, uh, History of the Jews called Wanderings, one of the first books that really got me interested in history. And one of the things that stuck with me in Potok's History of the Jews was a description of a Cossack uprising in the mid-17th century led by Hetman Bodan Khmelnytsky. While the primary enemy of this uprising was the Poles, Ukraine's Jews were the primary victims. Uh, there were horrible pogroms for several years um, in the mid-17th century, 1600s. Whole communities were brutally eradicated. 
At the same time, the very name Khmelnytsky took on two very different meanings as Ukrainian history was kind of codified and solidified within the national narrative of the 19th and 20th centuries. On the one hand, his name was synonymous with the birth of, Russia, of the Ukrainian nation for many Ukrainians. Um, a city in Western Ukraine is actually named after him. Um, and there's a massive statue to Khmelnytsky in the very center of Kiev that I had to pass every day when I was doing my archival research back in the early 2000s. Um, and it was always very disturbing to me, this celebration of this man who I'd grown, grown up essentially knowing as a killer of Jews. For Jews, then, his name is synonymous with anti-Semitism in Ukraine, with the evil designs that this people had against Jews. I also remember telling one of my professors that I wanted to write my dissertation about Ukraine, and her response was, oh, you want to write about Petlura's people, referring to the nationalist leader of, uh, among Ukraine, uh, during Ukraine's brief period of independence in 1919 when Petlura's soldiers brutally murdered Jewish communities, which led to one of the final mass migrations of Jews to the U.S. before the 1924 Immigration Act closed our borders um, for one of the first times. When I first started studying the Holocaust, I remember uh, I learned about Ukrainian collaborators with the Nazis, and I remember watching Cloud Lansman's nine-hour documentary, Shoah, where even a group of anti-Semitic Poles that were interviewed by uh, the director denounced Ukrainians as the truly brutal agents of mass murder within the death camps. So these were the things going through my head when I first went to Ukraine in 2004. Um, but I think that, you know, I, was, I, I, I arrived at a key period of, 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 of transformation, a, a, a period that I like to call a period of shifting discourses, a shifting way of talking about um, Jews and talking about Jews in Ukraine and, and Jewish history and, and Ukrainian history. Um, so so I, I went there right as the Orange Revolution was happening and the inauguration of sort of the Western-leaning president, Viktor Yushchenko. Um, my own experiences in Ukraine during this time um, was, um, was, was fairly positive, although not entirely so. Um, is, um, uh, on the Maidan, where a lot of the protests were happening, also there were a number of uh, people selling Russian translations of Mein Kampf and David Duke. And I remember having an argument with, a, with an older woman um, who uh, she was claiming that David Duke was actually Jewish and that that's why he knew so many things about Jews. And I was, I was arguing that that was not the case. And then, um, you know, I, I quickly hurried away. But my, my general impression was this, this, was a, this was a country that was definitely in a transition, um, that was receptive to uh, Jewish history. Um, but at the same time, I also understood when talking to Jews that many of them still supported pro-Russian political candidates in, in, um, in Kyiv uh, in, in, to some degree, but, but particularly the Jewish communities, the much more extensive Jewish communities in Kharkiv and Dnipro. Um, these, these were generally people who supported pro-Russian candidates. At the same time, um, I remember watching um, live 
the inauguration of Viktor Yushchenko, and he had uh, um, Ukraine's chief rabbi um, sort of uh, speaking um, at that inauguration. He was the first president who invited the chief rabbi of Ukraine to speak, and so I, I, I definitely felt that um, things were changing. And I, I remember that uh, the chief rabbi also made an effort a pained effort, but an effort nonetheless to speak Ukrainian during this inaugural address. Um, uh, so with, with the Maidan in 2014, uh, the revolution that toppled uh, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, we, we begin to see a much broader incorporation of Jews into Ukrainian, the Ukrainian national narrative. Uh, Ukrainian Jews generally supported the demands of the more moderate protesters, and even among the Ukrainian Jewish diaspora, there were outpourings of support for this new Ukrainian government. Even people that I knew in Boston, uh, friends of mine, uh, suddenly became Ukrainian patriots. And that was really heartening, and it, it was definitely something that, that uh, felt new about, about this moment. And this is despite the fact that there were nationalists who participated in, on the Maidan, and despite the fact that the narrative that I heard so often during this period was a bunch of fascists have toppled a legitimate government. Um, and, and that irked me because I knew that that wasn't the case. These people were on the scene, they were doing things, but they weren't, they hadn't captured the government the way that many uh, m that many people in Russia wanted us to think. And I've been personally amazed at what's happening within the historical profession in Ukraine. There has clearly in the past been a divide between Jewish history and Ukrainian history with very different and oftentimes conflicting intellectual interests um, within these two groups. But I've also witnessed uh, a radical transformation in recent years where these two intellectual traditions are converging where Jews and non-Jews alike in Ukraine are working together to integrate Jews into Ukrainian history and Ukraine into Jewish history. And of course, of course, we've heard and you've heard over and over again that Ukraine now has a Jewish president. Um, the only country besides Israel that has a president of Jewish descent in the, in the uh, figure of Vladimir Zelensky. And I call him Vladimir Zelensky because he is also a Russian speaker, one who had to learn Ukrainian, um, learn to speak it fluently, to, to be able to speak to both of these populations in this multicultural and multilingual um, country that, that he was now president of. And so at this precise moment where I see and a lot of people see Ukraine moving in a positive direction, confronting its past, you know, incorporating Jews into the national narrative more and more, we get this very ugly claim that this war is being pursued for the purposes of denazification. And my point is that, you know, um, this is the moment when Ukraine is, in fact, moving in the opposite direction, as, as that claim would suggest. And it's incredibly important that Jews realize this and to not fall into stereotypes and impressions that may, we may have had about the Ukrainian, about Ukrainian history or maybe about even the Ukrainian uh, national character. 
Um, I want to I want to end here um, and just take questions and hear what you guys have to th have to think about this. I mean, even if it's not a question, I, I welcome any thoughts or or you know statements about how you're feeling about what's going on. I th I think it's great if we could just have a conversation um, at the end of this. Um, but uh, you know, everybody sort of asks me like, what can we do to help Ukraine? Um, obviously, support international organizations in their delivery of humanitarian aid. Um, encourage our representatives to not lose interest. Right? Um, uh, Steve Cohen, of course, made a very strongly worded statement against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, let's encourage him to continue to make those statements and again, not lose interest, to keep pressure on Russia as much as possible. And we do need to ramp up our support for more military hardware um, being sent to Ukraine. Um, uh, they, they're pursuing, they're, they're engaged in a liberation struggle and we should, we should, we should understand that. So anyway, thank you for listening. Again, happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you. Robert. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the, the question was, uh, um, it's often stated in sort of, I guess, the mass media that Putin is uh, someone who wants to reconstruct the Soviet Union owing to his kind of um, KGB background and so on. Uh, but um, another, I guess, counter narrative is he's more of a Russian nationalist. Um, I don't I don't think he's either a Russian nationalist or a um, someone who wants to reconstruct the Soviet Union. I think that he um, he believes that he's um, that he's pursuing um, Russia's rightful imperial ambitions. You know, he's someone who um, the, who believes that the Russian national idea is Russia is an empire, um, the Soviet Union sort of maintained that imperial identity on some level, certainly under Stalin, and that you know the, Russia's rightful place in the world is as a powerful state that, um, that I don't want to say dominates, because that automatically sort of morally Im impugns it, but it, that Russia has hegemony within its own sort of broader imperial space, that that is G Russia's destiny, that that is Russia's historical position. Um, and uh, the reason why I don't think he's a nationalist, um, and I'm, I'm willing to be, to, 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 um, for someone to tell me I'm wrong here, but the reason why I don't think he's a nationalist is because he doesn't speak as an ethnic Russian nationalist. Russian national, the term nationalism in Russia has connotations of sort of, um, I guess, kind of uh, sort of a fascist kind of ethnic uh, tendency. You know, whereas his understanding of, of Russianness is people who speak Russian who identify with the history of Russian civilization. So maybe it's a sort of civic nationalism, but it, rather than an ethnic nationalism. But that distinction, I think, nonetheless needs to be um, drawn out. Thank you, Professor. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
As an armchair student of history, I may have misinformed my class last week about what happened in the 20th century with Russia and Ukraine. Could you set me and all of them straight? Like, you, you just mentioned Stalin in passing. What informs this moment about the Ukrainians and the Russians based on your research and based on history? Um, well, I, I mean, <laughs> there's some flashpoints, certainly, um, in the Russian-Ukrainian relationship. I mean, one of the biggest flashpoints is uh, the famine of 1933. Um, I don't know if you mentioned that in, in your class, but um, I mean, this, so I, to, to be rather concise here, um, peasants in the early 1930s throughout the Soviet Union were, were forcibly placed within collective farms in order for agriculture, uh, agricultural produce to be extracted more easily, sold to the West so that the Soviet Union could then industrialize. Um, so overall, peasant lives were expendable. But um, um, the, there, um, after a series of poor harvests, um, especially in Ukraine, Stalin refused to reduce the grain quota for extracting grain from the peasants, and approximately three to four million peasants starved to death over the course of 1932 and 1933, which is a horrible atrocity that still has not gotten the kind of play in, in uh, mass media that it deserves. Do Ukrainians remember that? They absolutely do. They refer to it as the Holodomor. And they consider it a genocide. Um, it's largely not been recognized internationally as a genocide. Um, and I think in, in an earlier period of time, I, I, I would have been critical of this dev designation myself. Um, because when I was in Ukraine, one of the things I saw were implicit comparisons between the Holocaust and the Holodomor. And that, that upset me, you know, because they used the sort of um, imagery of, of barbed wire, uh, the kind of imagery that we see in, in Holocaust museums, to apply it to this, this famine. Um, I now see sort of why they were doing that, and, and I, I, don't, I don't really fault them as much as I did, um, because I, I sort of understand the history of modern Ukraine as a, a, a century of Russians primarily, but also other neighboring, you know, dominant um, countries like Poland, like Austria, sort of breaking the Ukrainian peasantry. Um, and I think that's an important component of the national narrative, even if it's not always presented as accurately as we, we like. It still informs Ukrainians how they see themselves vis-a-vis -vis their neighbors and how they understand themselves as different. Um, now, they do understand themselves as different also because they, they possess a different language, a different history, a different folk culture, and so on. Um, but I think that the history of victimization is also very important to understand and to sympathize with. Yes? If you could use the microphone, everybody Oh, okay. Oh, why did the Russians destroy the Holocaust Memorial? Oh, um, are you referring to Baba Yar? Yeah, so Baba Yar is a ravine outside of Kyiv, which is um, the site of where about 35,000 Jews were, were killed in um, September, on September 4th, 1941. 
um, this was the first moment in which um, the Nazis, at a, at a local level, um, organized the um, complete destruction of, of a local Jewish community. It had been, mass murder had been sort of haphazard before this, but at, with Baba Yar, it was a very clearly organized project. Um, and you know, over the course of a mere two and a half days, 35,000 Jews were killed. Now, the Soviets treated them as, quote unquote, peaceful Soviet citizens. And they built a monument to Baba Yar back in the 1960s. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Jewish groups got involved, primarily, um, primarily those in Ukraine, but also with support from international Jewish organizations, and they created a, a more specific monument as a site of, of the Holocaust. And then other groups also chimed in and said, okay, we need to recognize this group and this group and this group, because this continued to be a site of mass murder. When the Russians were coming into Kiev, they were coming through Baba Yar, and, and they did defile this site. I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but, but, they, were, but they did destroy the, the memorial to uh, the victims of Baba Yar. Um, I mean, it was, I, what I mean to say is that, yes, it was intentional that they were coming through there and try, in their efforts to take Kiev, but I don't know if it was intentional like oh we're gonna we're gonna destroy this monument to the holocaust I, I i don't have any evidence that that's what they were doing in particular but, yes Please, go. absolutely i mean this was uh, again kiev was taken um in early september 1941 um early very early on in in operation barbarossa as part of world war ii and on the eastern front and they um uh, Kiev was really the first place they, the, the Germans encountered stiff resistance from the, from the Red Army. Um, and as punishment for that resistance, oh, and as punishment, one of the things that the Red Army did is they mined central Kiev. And so when the Germans came in, they set off the mines, and, and a lot of Germans lost their lives for the first time in this genocidal, murderous campaign of theirs. And so as punishment for this, they, um, they hung up, it was, they hung up these signs all around Kiev that say all Jews must leave their apartment, they must take up their belongings and meet at the corner of these two streets, which is now what we understand as Baba Yar, or it, it's, it, it translates as Grandma's Ravine. I don't know why they called it that. But, um, yeah, um, and so, yeah, this was definitely an early sort of indication of what the Holocaust was going to look like in Ukraine. Thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, your lecture. Thank you. I'm also, I'm a believer that history can repeat itself if we don't sure. learn from history. Mm -hmm. And I see one of two things happening. At some point in time, Russia takes over Ukraine, however the long war lasts, or the West takes much stronger stances to defeat Russia, because I think that's going to have to happen. Your thoughts on will what the West have the courage to do a lot more than they're doing now. Otherwise, I personally don't see them uh, defeating Russia. Um, yeah, the prospects for Ukraine defeating Russia on its own are, are very slim. At the same time, I, I, I don't think that other countries can get involved without escalating this into a nuclear conflict. We shouldn't forget that Russia is the only country whose nuclear policy includes first-use nuclear weapons. Most, 
I think every other country that has nuclear weapons, um, their nuclear policy is to use it only in defense. Russia it, um, imagines a situation where it could use them as an offensive tool. Um, and so th I think that justifiably scares us a little bit more than, um, it justifiably scares us to the degree that we, I don't think we're willing to take that risk. I think, and I don't think the American people ultimately will sustain that risk. Um, yeah. A student question? Yeah. I just saw the uh, the the Russian convoy is still stalled and at the north point of Kiev on the news like a couple of days ago. Absolutely, yeah. They're they're closing in, and and um, one um, one danger is is that um, they will take Kiev within the next several days. I hope that's not true. My students are reminding me that we always end at 5.30, and we have f five more minutes, right? So uh, I think we have two more questions. Got it. Yeah, thank you. This has been really great. Um, I don't, what do you think happened when the Soviet Union collapsed at right around 91, 92? I was, it was really hopeful that, that this, you know, the Soviet Union, I mean, the Russian whole, would, you know, I saw all the, all the different breakaway republics start their own countries and everything, and it was really a hopeful time, and I, I never understood why didn't the United States at that time really embrace, and really embrace the the Russian people and the Russian government or whatever, and, and try to really, um, it seemed like Russia always had a trouble with transferring over from a communist system to a free market economy. And it's kind of odd because China is a communist government, but it, they practice free market very well. And I always wondered why the United States didn't help and draw Russia closer at that time. Well, I, my response to that is that we did. Russia did join the free market. Russia did join the global capitalist system. They very successfully joined the global capitalist system under Russia. And I think the sort of neoliberal idea of what was going to happen was that as Russia is gradually incorporated into the global financial system, that that would cause them to be more democratic. We know now that they used that capitalist global system to entrench their elites, to enrich their elites, and to um, close down the possibility for democracy. So my read on this is that the free market does not naturally lead to democracy. We need to fundamentally rethink the, that connection. Um, and I think China also gives us evidence that a, an authoritarian, dictatorial system can pursue a free market agenda and corrupt that system from within. We have time for one more question. Rabbis? <laughs> On the hot seat, yes, rabbis. Or professor. We have other professors in the room. Here we are. Thank you. 
uh, thank you for this. It's been wonderful. One question uh, for those of us who have been following the news the last few days, that Naftali Bennett seems to be uh, starting to play a pivotal role potentially in um, talking both with Ukraine and Russia and may bring both of them to the table. Can you talk about the relationship between Israel and both of these two countries and the role that they might play? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm an expert on on that question in particular. Um, you know, Israel Israel has has enjoyed very favorable relationships uh, relations with Russia uh, for quite some time now, um, and uh, you know, Putin has got along well with various Israeli uh, prime ministers. The history is not as much there uh, on the on the Ukrainian side, and so what I fear um, is that uh, the Israeli government will play a little bit of both sides. Um, and which, of course, by definition, favors the Russians. Uh, uh, at the same time, we, we need a ceasefire. You know, uh, it's just that Zelensky, at this point, in no way um, wants a ceasefire at the expense of any of Ukraine's sovereignty. You know, he has been the most vociferous advocate of Ukrainian sovereignty since, you know, Ukraine um, became independent. You know, this he um, there are stories of him uh, yelling at his advisors if they even suggest that we need to give in to Russian demands for Russia to be to have a role to play within Ukrainian politics. Because let's make, make no mistake, Minsk, the Minsk agreement was a blank check for Russia to internally corrupt Ukrainian politics. Um, and that's why Ukraine didn't really want to pursue it. Um, and so what I worry in the present case is that, you know, um, Israel will ask Ukraine to reconsider the question of, of federalization or something like that that would just once again open the door to Russia, Russian incursion uh, into Ukraine's sovereignty. Um, I, I, but again, I, I support 100 percent of ceasefire, and I hope, I hope the Israelis manage to make that happen on a fair and equitable basis. Rabbi Simons has informed me that everyone here has spring break next week. Um, so we will not be meeting next week at this time, but uh, for, for the Temple High School and uh, T.I. Chai. And by the way, all you adults are always welcome back to our class and all of you watching as well. But please join me in not only thanking Professor First, but this has been such a fascinating, troubling, thought-provoking hour, and any of you who are still in the Danziger Chapel can stay after and meet with uh, Dr. First one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But Josh, thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Michael. Class dismissed. Please rise. Thank you again.